Welcome to Heart to Heart Nurses, brought to you by the Preventive Cardiovascular Nurses Association. PCNA's mission is to promote nurses as leaders in cardiovascular disease prevention and management. Today's episode of the Heart to Heart Nurses podcast is the first of a three-part mini-series focusing on health equity. We are pleased to be partnering with Medical Alley to bring you this special guest episode. If you'd like to hear more from Medical Alley, you can follow the Medical Alley podcast or visit their website at medicalalleypodcast.org. Enjoy! Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening to everyone out there in Medical Alley. Thank you for joining us on another episode of the Medical Alley podcast. This is your host, Frank Jaskalki, and we're doing another episode today as part of our longstanding partnership with the Preventative Cardiovascular Nurses Association and the Association of Black Cardiologists. Uh, Today, we're going to have a fun and very important conversation on the role of community-based initiatives in improving health outcomes and promoting health equity. And I'm so pleased to be joined by two fantastic guests who are going to give us some perspective and some insight. And I'm so pleased to be joined by two fantastic guests. Uh, we're going to be joined by Dr. Rimsky Dennis and by Ms. Sam Hoffler. And the two of them are going to give us some perspectives on community health and community-based initiatives. And what I might ask is, Dr. Dennis, if you'd start Just tell us a little bit about yourself and your practice and your work. And then, Sam, I'll ask you the same thing. Hello, everyone. My name is Rimsky Dennis, and I am a interventional and structural cardiologist here in Miami, Florida. I deal with a broad range of cardiovascular diseases, ranging from the management of hypertension all the way to the management of complex coronary artery disease and valvular disease. Oh, wonderful. Thank you. And Sam, what about you? My name is Sam Hoffler, and I am the Director of Food Programs at Reinvestment Partners, and we are an anti-poverty nonprofit based in Durham, North Carolina. Oh, fantastic. Thank you both for joining us. Sam, I might start with you. When I was reading up on some of the work that you're doing, I'd seen this uh, produce prescription program. Could you tell our listeners a bit about what that is and why it's so important to the work that you're doing? Of course. So a produce prescription is when a healthcare provider says to their patient, to improve your health, I want you to eat more fruits and vegetables. So through our contracts with health insurers, partnerships with clinics, and even projects with the Veterans Health Administration, we're working to make sure that that food that the doctor wants you to eat is paid for just like a prescription. We want to make sure that if a doctor or healthcare professional recommends using food as medicine or food instead of medicine, that that food is paid for just like any other prescription. And the way that we're doing that is through a program called EatWell. EatWell provides money each month for participants to spend on fruits and vegetables of their choice. We leverage technology to make the enrollment and shopping experience as easy as possible. EatWell participants use a prepaid debit card that reloads each month to buy their fruits and vegetables so that they can shop when and where they want. Very interesting. Okay. And and how long has this program been going on? How's it gone so far? 
we have made so much progress since we began this project in 2018. Um, I think in part, this is due to our focus on making sure that this model can meet the needs of healthcare payers, providers, and participants. And so for us, we keep participants at the center of everything, even as we build a program that can meet compliance requirements and manage data security and deliver high quality services and scale across geographies and lines of business. And we want um, EatWell and programs like it to be a covered benefit for anyone who needs it. We have the potential to unlock long-term funding from the healthcare sector to pay for healthy food. And that's what we're really trying to do. And we've served a hundred thousand people so far. Oh wow. And our participants, yeah, they spend a million dollars per month in fruits and vegetables right now at their local retailers. So it's for me just so incredible to know that folks are able to buy the fruits and vegetables that they want for themselves and for their families. And that those fruits and vegetables are improving their health. We are embedded in the healthcare sector now. We have been able to show not only that food can be prescribed in a doctor's office, which is the first proof of concept, but also that patients will spend the money if it's easy to use and allows them to choose what's best for them and their families. Oh, I love hearing that. That Thank you for describing that. And I might ask you, Dr. Dennis, you know, we, I think that that may be an example of a community-based initiative, but maybe you could give our audience some perspective from the physician side and this idea of like, what do we mean when we say community-based initiatives? So certainly when we speak about community-based initiatives, we're speaking about initiatives that are primarily driven by individuals who live and reside in the community that we're referring to. These individuals work, they live, they uh, commute, and they are active participants within that community. And they take a direct and active and uh, forefront approach to resolve a, a program or a, a problem rather that has deemed uh, to be necessary to address, to be addressed in their community. Ah, very interesting. That, that sounds then like you would be working with them as opposed to, or not as opposed to, but instead of for them, you're partnering with them on the issues they've identified as critical and important. Exactly. They've identified these these issues as critical needs and critical issues that uh, they would like to be addressed. And they take the brunt of the initiative for the most part in addressing these issues. And uh, with assistance from other community partners and other organizations, the, the issue is, is tackled and, and is addressed head on. Oh, very interesting. And I think I had seen something you've worked on or worked with. Is this a chat program or CHAT program? What's that? Sure. As a member of the Association of Black Cardiologists, I currently serve as a member of the Community Programs Committee. And one of the things that we do on a an annual and uh, on an annual basis is uh, we put on multiple events and we put on multiple uh, programs to address uh, health within different communities uh, throughout the nation. Uh, the goal of the committee of the committee in and of itself is to engage the community um, in healthcare political systems in efforts to reduce disparities in cardiovascular health, which has been experienced uh, disproportionately by African Americans. Um, and we have programs uh, that are designed to educate African Americans on heart health issues and to learn how to take a more proactive approach towards towards addressing cardiovascular vascular risk factors that affect 
their health and well-being. And the CHAP program, uh, which stands for Community uh, Health Advocate Training, is an initiative whereby we train individuals in the community. These are individuals who, who go to churches in their communities. These are individuals who work in the community. These are individuals who uh, are from different organizations. We train these individuals on how to identify uh, certain risk factors um, and also to uh, educate other individuals in their community whereby they can promote uh, healthy uh, living. Oh, very interesting. And maybe one more question kind of related to that. You, you've been an advocate for community health fairs and you mentioned the events. What's the role of a community health fair and why, why is that so important even in this age of you know, digital communications and information everywhere? Yeah, I think that's a great question. I think community health fairs are very important because they address a need in many communities that having that simply having insurance does not address. So many individuals in communities have barriers to accessing health care that make it difficult for them to achieve optimal health. So by having community health fairs, we certainly address the cost barrier, whereby we're providing free or low-cost services to the individuals in their community. Oftentimes, it's on a weekend, so the issue with regard to going to work or not being able to attend the event that addressed. In addition to that, uh, the community uh, events um, that we typically do, uh, such as a health fair, is usually done with the assistance and with information that is provided by the community in efforts to decrease some of the social determinants of health barriers that oftentimes preclude individuals from achieving optimal health. So I think community health fairs still have a role in identifying and screening individuals who have a broad range of cardiovascular health issues or general you know, health issues who have not been seen or have not seen a medical professional in many years. And then when we identify these individuals, our goal ultimately is to uh, connect them with uh, an organization or a healthcare provider whereby their health can be managed much more effectively moving forward. Interesting. Well, and then Sam, in the work you're doing, I have to imagine, you know, maybe there's similar strategies or other strategies you're taking to engage in the communities, whether it's relative to the food program or other efforts. Could you talk a bit about, you know, the, the work you and reinvestment partners do in partnership with the communities? Of course. Um, when I think of community-based, I really think about connection. And what we're able to do as an organization in service of people's needs to keep patients at the foundation of every single decision we make, we're not thinking of shareholders. We're not thinking of anything else. And I think that's such such a gift to be able to really genuinely center what is best for folks. And not only are we able to listen to the way that people want to receive benefits or the way that people um, kind of speak of their own health. We can do all of that and integrate what we're learning from folks into our program and into our program design. And so we are really thinking about how to get the most money to as many people as possible. And any additional funds that we access through this model are reinvested in the pressing needs of folks especially for us who live in Durham, North Carolina, where the cost of living is rapidly increasing and it seems like everything is more expensive by the day. So we reinvest our funds in affordable housing that we 
you know, we're rehabbing or managing, we're making sure that we have housing counselors that keep people in their homes or guide them through the home buying process, keep them from being evicted. And then also we, we do that work through our produce prescription. We focus on neighborhoods in Durham that don't have access to um, food or, or have kind of lower income areas of Durham. And, and we focus on, on those areas for our produce prescription. So I think what's interesting and what's important about community-based interventions is that they're deeply informed by folks on the ground. And I think that's such an asset as we kind of cross that bridge into connecting into to healthcare and corporate healthcare. So I think it's a really cool role that we get to play. Yeah. And in that healthcare piece, and I'll be interested to get both of your perspectives on this. Sam, you had talked about, you know, interacting with the providers, you know, a, a doctor may give a prescription for the food. What is that like interacting with the provider community and developing those relationships and maybe moving something along that isn't as traditionally part of the, the healthcare establishment? I think that that's one of the parts that I'm really excited about is this idea that we can redefine what it means to care for someone. So one of the things that we're doing is focusing on something called affirmative outreach that I'm really excited about. And what it is, is so often we we hear from folks that it's really hard. It's really hard to figure out how to navigate the healthcare system, or if you're thinking just generally of assistance or other kinds of benefits, that it's a challenging. And I think you could argue that it's challenging on purpose in some ways. But I think what we're trying to do with affirmative outreach is to say to people, we want to figure out using their healthcare data that already exists, right? So let's say we want to target someone with hypertension. Their medical provider or their health insurance company already knows that they have hypertension. And so they can basically recommend this program to them. They can let us know. And they actually can even send them a text message. It just says, hey, you're eligible to get $100 per month in fruits and vegetables. And we develop something where they can just enroll online. So they're sitting in their home. They get a text message or an email from their provider saying, hey, we want to care for you in this way. And we think you would benefit from this. They enroll online and they get their prepaid debit card in two weeks in the mail. And we've done this with lots of different health partners. And we've enrolled 5,000 people in the span of four weeks time. And imagine that experience for that person, right? They're sitting in their home. They're kind of realizing that whoever their insurer is, it's like, oh my gosh, they're kind of thinking about me. They actually care about me. They're doing something that's either preventative in certain cases or a treatment in other cases, facilitating that healthier diet for them. And so what we've seen is that people really enjoy it. And, and we've noticed that the healthcare companies also really really benefit from that because it, more in their terms, they're seeing member retention, they're seeing member engagement, right? And this could be a tool to redefine the relationship that they have with their patients and get those patients in for additional services. So we're, I'm very excited about this idea of affirmative enrollment. And I think that it could be something really special where we're kind of trying to redefine what that relationship is from the patient side with their healthcare provider and allowing the healthcare provider to treat them in a new or kind of different way and have a different path to do that with having the community-based organization as the link. Indeed. And, and Dr. Dennis, I know in, in your field in, in structural and interventional cardiology, there's often new interventions, new procedures, new therapies that are coming on. 
But I think for a lot of our listeners, we're, we're hoping to convey to them, as both of you have shared already, different tools that they can use to engage. One other thing I'd seen mentioned in your work was this barbershop hypertension initiative. So maybe continuing on the, the topic of hypertension for a moment, can you talk about what that initiative is and the, the sort of impact that it has? Certainly. So through the Association of Black Cardiologists, I've been fortunate to participate in their barbershop hypertension initiative, which essentially is an initiative whereby barbers throughout the entire United States are trained on different cardiovascular disease risk factors, uh, including hypertension, diabetes, obesity, smoking, physical inactivity, uh, and hyperlipidemia. Uh, these individuals receive training on how these chronic conditions are managed, how they're treated, um, and ways in which they can ultimately be prevented. We also discuss different ways in which these conditions are screened for. So the barbers receive a host or a wealth of information with regard to these chronic diseases. In addition to that, the barbers are trained on how to properly obtain blood pressure measurements uh, with a blood pressure monitoring device. The barbers themselves are then uh, charged with the task of going out into their communities and providing this information to their clients. And if a client is interested in receiving their blood pressure or having their blood pressure measured, rather, the barber can uh, further do so uh, within the barbershop. And if individuals are found to have elevated or uh, blood pressure results that are out of range, those individuals are then referred to different community organizations or healthcare providers whereby they can receive proper follow-up. So the, this initiative uh, was started many, many years ago by Dr. Elijah Saunders, who was an Association of Black Cardiologists uh, member uh, and has uh, revolutionized screening, um, particularly huh. within minority communities uh, for about three decades, three wow. or four decades now. So we've been able to identify individuals who have a host of chronic uh, diseases in in addition to hypertension, and we've been able to plug those individuals into the different healthcare systems or different organizations within their community whereby they can receive follow-up and proper treatment. Oh, that's fantastic to hear, especially the the longevity of the program. You know, there, there aren't a lot of things that we get to hear about where they've had that sustained impact and the, the breadth of impact that you just described. Sam, what that makes me think of is you know, the importance of cultural competency and inclusivity in the work that we're doing. How do you think about that or how does that play out in the work that Reinvestment Partners is doing? Such a great question. I think it's so important. And one of the things that we're most adamant about is that folks should be able to choose the fruits and vegetables that they want and like or that work with their diet or their storage situation or their cooking capabilities or whether or not they have a fridge, all of these things come into play. And it's a really foundational part of what we're trying to do is to trust people to know what their bodies need. And in large part, we're offering fruits and vegetables because that's kind of the only thing that everyone agrees is healthy. So that's where we're starting. <laughs> We'd like to see, yeah. you know, additional foods included. And I imagine that will happen over time, but I think there's still 
a bit of debate as far as what should be included or not. So right now we're focused on that and we're hoping that by connecting people with funds for food, we essentially free up money in their overall household budget to allow them, again, we're focused on the autonomy. So now they can spend their money and different ways to whether it's to improve their health or you know meet their basic needs indeed these are these are linked yeah these things are linked and so i think we're really focused on allowing people to choose what they want to do and we're trying to make it as easy as possible we're trying to make sure folks are not applying or renewing or having to share you know income information with us and so in doing so, I think that people feel my sense. And, and when I talk to folks is that they can feel the difference. Right. They can feel that we actually care for them. We're trying really hard to make this as easy as possible for them. One last question I'll ask both of you. I think we know healthcare and public policy are so closely linked uh, for good and for bad. And I always like to ask our guests, you know, when you look at the public policy realm, are there things we should be working on or doing more of or doing less of? Like, what would be each of your advice to policymakers who might be listening? Sam, I might start with you and then Dr. Dennis finish with you. This is the question I think we could spend five hours right. on. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. So I think it's such a good question and I think, it, I think it's the right question. So we, for me, I think simply put, we should be insuring more people. So what we're doing is really working through the health insurance system to, in, to use that as a funding mechanism for people to have access to money for food. And we know that not everybody is insured. So I think that that is a public policy question, right? Is to get everyone insured, and then also to improve the quality of healthcare that people receive when they do have health insurance. Those are two key things. And I think when it as it relates to food as medicine or the food as medicine movement, I think there's a ton of potential here, as I mentioned, to kind of reframe and redesign how we're caring for people and how we think about improving health. So I think it is transformative to imagine that there's someone providing healthcare for you, whether that's a doctor or another professional that actually sees you and wants to care for you in a way that's rooted in connection and rooted in dignity and um, trust, right? And that's what I mentioned before. I think trusting people and trusting their bodies is a key piece here. And I also think about political will. We know, and Dr. Dennis can attest, that a diet rich in fruits and vegetables improves health outcomes. We know that, right? So we need something to push us toward actually paying for that. We have shown with EatWell that we now have the mechanism to connect people with those fruits and vegetables that, that their provider is suggesting that they eat. And so we are seeing a bit of a culture change within healthcare where they are thinking about this idea very seriously. And more importantly, they're thinking about how to pay for it. We know there are champions within the healthcare sector who absolutely understand the importance of doing this. I think that from the outside and from a policy perspective, I think we can think about how do we push this on terms that serve people who are in need today, right? I don't think we have to stop and defer to the timeline of the healthcare sector. So... I like to see, you know, evaluation and research used strategically. Yeah. I would like to see different mechanisms to pay for these initiatives explored. We're seeing in lieu of services out in California, which is laying the groundwork for possibly um, a path toward treating these as covered benefits. And then I think we're also seeing, in addition to that in lieu of service mechanism, we're seeing 
creative ways that healthcare partners can get these initiatives to fit within that medical loss ratio, right? So there are lots of different ways to do this. And I, I would just say I'm, I'm not exclusively relying on champions within the healthcare sector. I think that we can also find ways to push forward and in some ways hold their feet to the fire where we know this is important. And so we kind of are at a point where we need to put our money where our mouth is and figure out ways to creatively fund this for folks because it is urgent and it is affecting their health right now. And it's also affecting their health in the long term. Thank you. And, and Dr. Dennis, I'd ask for your perspective as well. You've, you've been involved with the Association of Black Cardiologists. Healthcare is so rooted in policy. Well, what's your take on where we should be focusing? Certainly. Uh, first and foremost, I agree 100% with everything that Sam uh, stated, and I echo her sentiments uh, 100%. Um, in addition to that, you know, I, I would simply add that we certainly have to increase the number of individuals who are insured in the United States of America. And I think that's something that we, um, as a community, as a nation, um, should and can do a better job in, um, in addressing. Um, in addition to that, I think that Increasing the number of individuals who are represented in clinical trials who come from minority or underrepresented or underserved communities, I think, is a key component with regard to the development of new pharmaceuticals, development of new therapies, and ultimately having a better understanding of how to address um, different communities from a host of different standpoints. So I think that's something from a policy standpoint that needs uh, to certainly uh, be addressed and something that we can uh, do better on. And I think from a policy standpoint, we as a we as healthcare professionals and individuals within the healthcare community, uh, we need to do a better job at addressing uh, health disparities um, within our community. Uh, I think we need to tie federal funding and reimbursements uh, to these desired um, metrics or uh, decrease um, uh, in disparity metrics. And I think if we can have reimbursements and funding, you know, tied to these desired metrics, I think we can certainly make much better strides with regard to truly seeing um, a, a, a real impact um, in these areas. Indeed. Yeah. As the old saying goes, you get what you pay for. I got to say thank you to both of you for sharing the, the insights, the perspectives, and the experiences helping our listeners gain a new perspective on community-based initiatives and how they might engage. So, Dr. Dennis, Sam, thank you both so much for spending some time with us today. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Thanks. And folks, that's been another episode of the Medical Alley podcast. If you're not already a subscriber, make sure to get over to medicalalleypodcast.org or you can find us on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you go for your podcasts. And hey, do me one little favor. Would you share this episode with just one other person? If everyone listening did that, we'd help share this important story and so many other stories in this incredible community with more people and advance healthcare faster. I'd really appreciate it. Until next time, have a great day. Thank you for listening to Heart to Heart Nurses. We invite you to visit PCNA.net for clinical resources, continuing education, and much more.